0: Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the High Energy Legal Podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it.
1: Hello and welcome into the latest installment of the Legal Faceoff Podcast on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brand and as always joined by one of our co-hosts, rich Lenkoff of bryce downey and Lenkoff, rich i brought it up on twitter how have you enjoyed your 47 seconds of chicago fall that we've been able to uh finally embrace
2: changed pretty quick right uh uh went from 80s with weekend to uh fall like but yeah that's chicago if you don't like it move
1: yeah w- wouldn't feel normal if we didn't put our heat and our air on in the same day right. uh, let's get right into it let's get right into it as uh we get to uh, the Gabby Petito face. And as the uh, FBI searches for Gabby Petito's fiance, law enforcement experts are claiming that huge mistakes have been made at the beginning of the investigation. With that, we bring in Jeff Lanza. He's the number one FBI agent keynote speaker. You've seen him on the Today Show. You've seen him on Good Morning America, CNBC, CNN, and Fox. And we're happy to have him here on the Legal face-off podcast. Jeff, thanks so much for being here today.
3: Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. Uh, uh, glad to be on. Thank you. So, Jeff, lots of different angles to this. Uh,
2: Given your background, I want to sort of pick up on maybe a jurisdictional issue, because this is a crime that, you know, allegedly occurred in the state of Utah, uh, yet the federal government is now involved through the FBI. Can you explain to our listeners why the federal government, again, through the FBI, gets involved when this happens uh, in a sovereign state of, you know, in the state of Utah?
3: sure so so if, if you if you took someone 's life in, in in any state in the United States that's not a federal crime in, in, in most circumstances so uh the idea that sh- that this victim was was taken across state lines and victimized um, across you know state lines either murdered in Utah and brought across state lines or murdered uh in in uh uh, in Wyoming, uh, that becomes a jurisdictional issue for the FBI. So then whether or not you know that for sure, the FBI has jurisdiction to be involved in that investigation. Now, whether prosecution would take place in federal court really depends on what happened. You also have the national park issue, federal law, federal land issue. If someone's murdered on in a national park, that is a federal crime. And the FBI would have jurisdiction to investigate that case. So that brings him into the case from a variety of different angles. And then wh- whoever prosecutes the case, that could be determined later, whether it's prosecuted by state authorities in Wyoming or any place else or federal authorities that can always be figured out later.
2: So as a veteran FBI agent for, for 20 years, sort of walk us through what's going on now behind the scenes. What kind of uh, work is the FBI doing? We've all seen videos, of course, of Uh, authorities raiding the home of Brian Laundrie's family. Um, But what is going on behind the scenes with the FBI right now?
3: Well, he's the number one suspect in the case, and the FBI doesn't like to use the word suspect nor does the Department of Justice. And that dates back to the Richard Jewell case from, from way back in uh, in 1996 when they were labeling him a suspect and, and that led to bad things happening as he was never involved in that particular bombing in in Atlanta. Uh, so they now they use the, the, the very, uh, I guess, uh, innocent term of person of interest, which is nothing more than a suspect in a case, right? So he's the number one suspect and what they're trying to do is locate him Uh, And of course, I mean, that's obvious they're going to try to locate him. But what what they're doing behind the scenes is trying to figure out how they're going to be able to pinpoint his whereabouts. Uh, You've probably heard the reports about social media and people giving clues to the FBI based on what they've seen based on changes to accounts that he's made. All of this is if being funneled into a task force that's been set up by the fbi in a location and they have lots of agents working on it lots of support people they're taking all this information and they're trying to figure out where this guy is right now now the search warrant is another thing that can be used to gain information so you know you don't know what you're going to get from a search warrant whether it's on a computer hard drive whether it's from someone's house uh, or any type of physical location they'll Undoubtedly, be clues that could help them locate this guy uh, based on what they uncover in those in those search warrants. Or there could be nothing at all. But you got to go down that path to see what you have. Jeff, speaking of clues,
2: um, you've lectured extensively, including Princeton, Harvard, lots of institutions, and you're an expert on body language. How to interpret body language? We've <laughs> seen the body language of Brian Laundry in this body cam video. To me, right away, he seemed to me, you know, to be. Squirrely, for lack of a better term. What did you pick up from his body language when he was being questioned by police? Um, You know, he was being, I think, uh, a little bit evasive and he was going, you know, maybe bending over backwards to seem uh, innocent. But what did you take from that relatively brief body cam video, if anything, from his body language?
3: No, oh, I think squirrely was is the word to describe it. I, I have to look at it again in detail and slow motion, and kind of kind of pick up things, uh, in, in, in it with more perspective that way. But y- yeah, I mean, you look for those things. You look for what someone's telling the truth or not. You look at their at their body language from from the face, the eye contact, whether a smile is real or faked or forced. You know, all of those things uh, uh, play into you know your determination if if someone's you know telling the truth or or being evasive, hiding information. Um, all of that. Is probably existent in that video. If you went back and looked at it, you'd be able to see uh, see it in more detail. But squirrely would be the best word to describe it. And that what that means is something's going on there. Something's going on in his mind that um, that he's not sharing. And and um, so that's that's what we know. And 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 uh, that would be that could you can determine that from the body language just that alone. Jeff, last question
2: I have is, you know, again, speaking of body language and, and maybe, um, you know, things you pick up on from, from folks, uh, I was really taken by the first time we saw the FBI agent or the spokesperson um, and they were announcing their involvement. Uh, the the FBI agent, I think it was, he, he was he kind of seemed choked up, which you don't see very often, you know, from stoic uh, FBI agents. Again, you're a veteran of the FBI Did that impress upon you anything? I mean, again, I'm sure you know you were trained on uh, handling these things very objectively and not getting emotionally involved. But this individual, when he was announcing, uh, you know, their involvement, he did seem to get
3: a little bit choked up. Can you any comment on that? Well, yeah, I mean, you're trained to compartmentalize things as an FBI agent. You see some really bad things. Uh, doing your job. And so do police officers, law enforcement officers. You got to go home to your family. You got to put that aside. Agents are generally um, are good at doing that. But understand what's going on here a little bit behind the scenes. So so the Denver FBI office, has all the executives in that, in those positions. So they have agents and they have supervisory agents, and then they have, you know, bosses of those people. And then they had the head of the Denver office. I don't believe he was the person that first made that announcement. Um, and the person that made the announcement was a, an agent that was in Wyoming, right? So he was head of the office there. Um, that's a lower level in the FBI, and nothing wrong with being at that level. But he may not have the experience to... Um, Uh, In dealing with that type of situation that someone else would have had that's been through a lot more. So so that may have been part of it. Um, You know, this this resident agent in Wyoming, which is uh, a fine job to have, but he may not have dealt with with things like that before, which may explain his emotional reaction at that time. And I would probably do the same thing as many other people would as well.
1: That's Jeff Lanza, the number one FBI agent, keynote speaker. He also does speeches for cybersecurity. For more on that and everything else he's done, check out his website at thelanzagroup.com. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having
0: me. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey & Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, dollar tree and the chicago bears for his outstanding litigation results in 2015 target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country rich has received a number of industry accolades including illinois super lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and leading lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka renegades a live show in las vegas starring terrell owens jose canseco and jim mcmahon in addition to co-hosting legal face-off since 2013 rich is the legal analyst for the john williams show on wgn radio bryce downey and lenkoff is a full service litigation firm practicing general liability workers compensation professional malpractice business transactions and intellectual property among other practice areas for more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLFirm.com. That's BDLFirm.com. Continuing on the Legal Face Off
1: podcast on WGN Radio, 20 years after the attacks on 9 11, the ACLU of Illinois is concerned of the impact of civil liberties. With that, we bring in the spokesperson for the ACLU of Illinois, Ed Yonka. Ed, thanks so much for being here today. Well, thank you guys. It's great to be here.
2: And thank you so much. We're going to get to the 9-11 impact in a second, but we also want to talk about some more recent news, which is Mayor Lightfoot here in Chicago has threatened, has announced actually, that the city is going to go after gang members uh, under some forfeiture laws and try to curb the massive rise in violence that we've seen, particularly gun violence, by again initiating lawsuits against gangs. You have an issue with that? Explain what the issue is.
4: So it's, it's really threefold. It's uh First of all, these laws have a very vague definition of what it means to be a gang member. This is not the federal RICO statute. This is a state law that has proven to be very ineffective, and often caught up people who really weren't, you know, the so-called kingpins that the mayor says she wants to go after. Number two, we know that forfeiture is a clumsy way in which to deal with almost any process, you know, uh, problem that you're trying to deal with, and in fact has mostly resulted in a lot of property being taken from innocent uh, relatives and grandmothers and the like. And the final thing is, is that. You know, in many ways, this is really sort of an undemocratic proposal from the mayor. Uh, right now, the city of Chicago, uh, if they had ample evidence and were willing to pursue it, could go after these cases through the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. That's what is permitted under the state law. But instead, uh, the, the city and the mayor are seeking to take this power away from an elected official in the state's attorney and give it to an unelected official uh, in terms of the corporation council, who reports to only one person, that being the mayor. We think that's a bad approach and frankly, it ignores the things that really work for addressing the gun violence problems that all of us are worried about. What is that? What should be done that would be more effective in your opinion? So I think there's a couple things there. Number one, I think it's really an investment in community. It's an investment in employment. It's an investment in health care and, and mental health care services. It's, a, it's an investment in other kinds of services in neighborhoods. But the other thing that is really important for this, candidly, is the need to address and really be sincere and serious about police reform. You know, we're, we're in a place now where there's a federal consent decree that oversees police reform and the city has missed most of its deadlines, a vast majority of its deadlines on that decree over the past two years. If you really want to reduce violence, one of the ways is to rebuild the relationship between the community, neighborhood by neighborhood, and the police that serve them. Joe, so that's
2: all good. Critics of what you're saying and proponents of what the mayor is doing. And in fact, the mayor herself as recently, as yesterday, yesterday, said yes. But. In the wake of unprecedented, you know, uh, murder rate, I think the I think we've already seen more murders in 2021 than we saw all of the previous year. Um, uh, people are dying all over the city, getting shot all over the city. Yes, it's true that there are uh, multiple possible layers to the solution, but why not? And why not? Why not uh, pursue this as well? And importantly. What about the victims? I know what you're saying is concerning to, you know, the alleged perpetrators. But what about the victims? Where do they fall into all of this?
4: Well, let me start by saying why not? You know, one of the other things about why not is, I think, a question of whether or not this could ever be effective. This, after all, is a city and a police department that had a gang database that was so out of date and so awful that they had to literally stop using it. But they now suddenly claim to have all of this information in which they can pursue these civil cases uh, in a hurry. The second thing is, is quite candidly, it would be, you know, it'll be a long time before any victim sees a dime from any of these kinds of suits. The suits will be challenged, they will be defended, there'll be questions over the property. The, the forfeiture process takes a, t- a time to do it. And, can't, and, and you know, also what we've seen with other forfeiture schemes at the state and the local level is that money usually doesn't end up in the pockets of any victims. It ends up in slush funds, which are controlled most often by the police department.
2: All right, Joe, switching gear to uh, I'm sorry, Ed, switching gears to the impact of 9-11 on civil liberties, you've been vocal in as we now pass the 20th anniversary of 9 11, talking about the detrimental effects that the government's actions in the wake of this tragedy have had on civil liberties. You know, initially it was the Patriot Act that generated a lot of discussion, um, and then, you know, sur- uh, increased surveillance of uh, citizens and non citizens. Where are we now, 20 years later? Uh, in terms of how civil liberties have eroded, in your opinion, in the wake of 9-11?
4: I think that one of the sad things is is that 20 years on from 9-11, that rather than look at the things we did and determine whether or not they're still necessary, the surveillance, uh, the way in which we've Uh, built and baked discrimination into our immigration system for Muslims and people coming from Arab and and, and mostly Muslim countries, that instead of sort of reanalyzing that, what we've done is just sort of concretize them. We we put them in place in a way that it's like we can't walk them back now. It's as though they can't be questioned in any way. Um, You know, when you think of the the massive surveillance programs uh, in which, you know, the government literally was claiming access to every phone call, text message, computer search, et cetera, that anybody did in the United States of America. You know, we ought to ask ourselves, is that really necessary today? And is that something that ought to be in place, again, without more oversight and without more examination? But, but instead of doing that, what we've seen on a ritual basis is those programs renewed most often by a voice vote in a Congress that doesn't really seem willing to roll up their sleeves and get into the serious business of looking at those programs and the impact they have on civil liberties. I think what was really interesting,
2: Ed, about some of what you said and really thought-provoking was the idea that, you know, the average citizen has turned a blind eye towards this increase in government power, because they don't think they're coming after me, right? The average person thinks that, well, what do I care? I'm not at risk, so bring it on, because really the people that are at risk are the bad guys, and I'm not a bad guy, and those bad guys don't look like me, and they're not my color, and they're probably from a different place. That's a really interesting take on it that I think most people don't maybe um, think about, right? So talk to us about that.
4: Just just a couple things. First of all, just touching on that point a little bit, it was really curious to me, and I'm just going to I'm going to step a little bit outside of ACLU issues. It's really interesting me, to me recently to see Kevin McCarthy and Republicans in Congress decry efforts to get their phone records because, quote, they didn't do anything. Well, you know, according to what they've been telling us for 20 years, if you've got nothing to hide, the government ought to be able to look through all of your records whenever they want. So, you know, I I think that one of the there's there's a couple things that we've done. Number one, we've sent the signal that somehow the only people we're really looking at are people from the Muslim and Arab and immigrant communities and newcomer communities, um, and that those are really the bad guys that we're going to go look for. And that manifested itself over the entire 20 years, you know, really culminating in the so-called Muslim ban from from President Trump. But I think that the other thing that we've done is, is that we've we've just sort of created an environment in which people accept that their data, their information, et cetera, is going to be subject to search. And I I think that that kind of change in the way in which we think about our private communications is something that culturally, um, you know, has a really long term detrimental
1: effect. Ed Yonka also served on the staff of the American Bar Association and was a special presidential assistant in the ABA's office of the president. Ed, thanks so much for all the knowledge today. Thank you, guys. Good to be with you.
0: We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony, and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com.
1: Moving along in the Legal Face Off podcast, we head to the topic of four Plainfield Central football players being charged with misdemeanors after a hazing ritual that left the high schools, rather that the high school coaches may have known about. Lawyer Ian Fallon says multiple students have endured similar abuse over the years. We bring in the attorney at Romanucci and Blandin Law, Ian Fallon. Ian, thanks so much for being here today.
5: Good afternoon, Joe. Thank you so much for
2: having me. Ian, so you filed this in uh, District U.S. District Court here in Chicago uh, on behalf of your clients. And again, as Joe mentioned, your allegations is, is that this has gone on of playing field for several years. Could you sort of walk our listeners a little bit through the history that brought us up to uh, the point in your uh, in your complaint? That's
5: correct, Rich. So uh, thank you so much for your question. Uh, This has been this hazing ritual at Plainfield Central has been going on for for at least a number of years. Um, We know um, and this is all information that's that's laid out in the complaint. But we know that this hazing ritual uh, was something that was known amongst members of the Plainfield community and among members of the Plainfield Central uh, football team coaching staff. Um, so we know going back to at least 2014, um, there have been um, similar uh, hazing rituals that have been performed on younger members of the team uh, going back a number of years.
2: So, you know, we're talking about, again, two former freshman players on the football team alleging that they were sodomized with a broomstick, you know. Um I guess the question comes to mind is: is why did this take place? I mean, that doesn't sound like normal hazing, even though we've seen and covered on this show pretty extreme uh, examples. And more to the point of your lawsuit, what is the motivation for the school administrators, parents, coaches, etc., to do nothing in the face of this? To, to in fact cover it up? I mean, what's the allegation that, uh, about that?
5: So, uh, Rich, I, I can't really speak to the, the state of mind of, of the perpetrators of this hazing, and I can't really speak uh, to the state of mind of, of school administrators at this point. Um, the, 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 uh, the school district will speak for itself uh, when they answer the complaint um, or if they file a motion to dismiss, whatever, whatever the form of their responsive pleading is. Um, and so they, they, will, they will be able to speak more accurately to their state of mind and to their actions in relation to these set of facts. Uh, what we do know um, is that uh, for years, again, this has been going on under Plainfield Central's roof and the Plainfield School District's um, on their property. Um, and so we we know that they were required to to monitor and to supervise the locker rooms and to keep kids safe and that they did not do that um, and so the motivation behind doing that we, we, we don't know and we can't speak for them all we know is that um, there were, there were no there were no coaches in the locker rooms to prevent this from happening when there should have been
2: Now, uh, again, as we've covered on our show, we have uh, seen years and years of lawsuits by victims, alleged victims of abuse, both sexual, physical abuse in the sports arena. Right. I mean, we're all familiar with what's going on with uh, gymnastics allegations. We've seen, of course, the Joe Paterna allegations, many, many similar situations. What do you think it is about the mindset uh, in the sporting world that allows this type of behavior to go on again, according to your lawsuit for years and years? In fact, we saw this again recently pop up with the Denny Haster case uh, involving, you know, uh, wrestling victims. What do you think it is about the mindset of, um, you know, locker rooms and sporting teams in general that promotes this kind of behavior?
5: Yeah, Rich, I don't think there's anything about sporting or athletics that inherently fosters this type of behavior and this type of hazing. All we know is that these toxic behaviors, as you said, in some school districts on some teams are allowed to grow and to fester and to continue to harm students. So um, the school districts throughout Illinois, throughout the country, um, have an obligation to, to keep Children safe and and to protect them from sexual assault, uh, particularly when they're engaging in these activities that are part and parcel of their public education. Um, but I don't I don't think there's anything inherently about athletics um, or about team sports that that creates a culture of hazing. I think that that's something that arises in specific on specific teams. And that is fostered and allowed to grow by administrations like the Plainfield Administration, um, who refuse to put a stop to it.
2: So, yeah, The Will County uh, state's attorney has refused to charge these uh, perpetrators with criminal hazing. They've said that these allegations don't meet the standard for criminal hazing. How do you think that decision will affect the success of your lawsuit?
5: So it won't. Uh, first of all, um, the, the, an important thing to acknowledge is that the standards of proof in civil lawsuits and criminal complaints are very different. Um, the state has the burden of proving beyond a reasonable doubt um, that, they, uh, that they have proof of every element uh, of a crime that's alleged. Um, so under the school, the criminal hazing statute is very different from what we have to prove Uh, for Illinois willful and willful and wanton conduct under Illinois law, constitutional rights violations under federal law, and things of that nature. Uh, What we can say is that uh, although the the, uh, criminal investigations uh, into these four gentlemen are subject to protective order, and we're not at liberty to discuss um, certain, certain details as a result of that protective order because the perpetrators are minors, Uh, We we can say that we we disagree uh, with uh, the the decision not to not to charge um, these individuals with hazing. Uh, We think um, that there is uh, sufficient evidence and very, very strong evidence that this was hazing. Uh, But at the end of the day, we're not the criminal prosecutors. We're not. We know that they have difficult jobs to do. We have very different jobs to do. Um, and we are still confident that we'll be successful, uh, given the differing levels of proof and the evidence that we've collected in our investigation.
2: And you know, last question here on Legal Face Off: uh, We talked to victims of abuse, sexual, physical abuse on this show. Uh for, for years, and uh, we speak to a lot of their attorneys, and obviously one consistent thing we see is how difficult it is for victims of abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse to come forward, right, because of uh, inevitable victim shaming, inevitable blaming of the victim, uh, and especially when it concerns minors who are still presumably part of this community. Um, it's obviously very difficult to go back to school, go back to your teammates if they're still on the team, and face the people you're accusing of. Such heinous crimes, even if those people have maybe moved on from high school. I know Plainfield, pretty small community. Everyone knows each other. Right. So talk to us about the difficulty that your clients uh, have had and perhaps will continue to have as this lawsuit progresses in terms of um, coming forward and uh, facing their accusers and bringing some light to these allegations.
5: Well, it's never easy for for victims of abuse, for survivors of abuse um, and sexual assault like this to come forward. You're very right, Rich. Um, And there are a number of allegations in our complaints. And and I would just refer you to those um, that talk about some of some of the ongoing harassment and bullying that our clients endured after this uh, after after this happened to them. Um, And so it's, it's absolutely horrifying. It is, you know, not only should, should children not be subjected to this type of hazing and sexual assault, but they should also uh, not be, not be ridiculed for, for what they went through. Um, It's, it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, And our clients um, are just working on, on moving forward, uh, getting some justice in this case. Um, and hopefully making uh, the Plainfield Central community a safer place through this lawsuit.
1: That's Ian Fallon, attorney at Romanucci and Blandin Law. You can find out more about him and the firm at rblaw.net. Ian, thanks so much for the insight today.
6: Thank you, Joe. And thank you, Rich, for having me on. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Face Off. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and partners Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane Chicago business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit
1: NWE.com. On to the next stop of the Legal Face Off podcast here on WGN Radio. Now, you may have caught the series on Peacock Dr. Death. With us today, Attorney Michelle Shugart, who is the lead prosecutor of the Dr. Death case. She's also an assistant district attorney at Dallas County and a chief at a felony court. Michelle, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me. Michelle, I have to say, as I told you earlier, that I've become obsessed with this whole case. You know, I watched the uh, the Peacock series, which was incredible. Uh, then I watched the documentary and then I've seen a lot of YouTube clips. I listened to the, <laughs> the podcast. I've become obsessed with the story. So I'm you really happy to obsessed. have you.
7: you may know it as well as me. <laughs>
2: yeah, I, I, I think I do. I'm really happy to have you. So the obvious question that I want to ask you from a legal perspective is, You know, obviously, you accomplished an incredible feat of prosecution in bringing. You know, one of the only times to bring someone uh, like this to a successful criminal prosecution, and by by person like this, I mean a doctor. You prosecuted a doctor for acts performed um, in the operation room, in the you know, in their treatment of a of a of a patient, which is really unusual. How daunting was that when you were considering how to? prosecute this. The series, you know, obviously does a good job in explaining this, but from your perspective, how daunting as a veteran prosecutor was uh, was, was starting that?
7: I would definitely say it was really daunting because we didn't have anything to work from to, to know whether, you know, was a jury going to convict a doctor of doing these sort of things or were they going to give them the benefit of the doubt? And we didn't know what it would look like as we presented it to the jury. So uh, we definitely had nerves the entire time we were investigating and preparing for trial.
2: At any point, you know, we all, I was a former prosecutor at at, at various points in your case, be it civil or criminal, you always have second thoughts and you always think, well, maybe there's another way to accomplish this. Uh, Talk us through sort of those points as you went along in prosecuting uh, Christopher Dunch and sort of how you overcame those and decided we've got to go, uh, you know, to trial on this case.
7: I mean, definitely, one of the first things that you know hit us in the face was, you know, what crime do we charge him with? Just figuring that out was um, took a lot of work and and brain power here at the office. And then um, once we get into it, trying to figure out how can we convince the jury of his mental state, and we we know about all of these patients that he's heard over time, but how can we convey that to them um, within the legal bounds? Um, and so we had to get creative on some of that law too.
2: Yeah. And, you know, the series does a really good job, I think, of explaining the importance to your case of the two, you know, whistleblower doctors as portrayed in the series by Alec Baldwin, Christian Slater. Um, I know you've spoken extensively on how important they were to the success of your cases, particularly in explaining some really, you know, intricate pieces of neurosurgery, right? I mean, it's not something that a average lay juror would understand, but for the help of, you know, trained neurosurgeons. So, talk to us about the assistance that they gave you both in leading up to the trial and then during trial itself.
7: Yeah. You know, Dr. Kirby, Dr. Henderson, um, we had some other doctors that also were constantly teaching us and Um, They basically had to teach us how to do the surgery, right? We had to learn neurosurgery, what it was supposed to look like, how the procedure was supposed to go, what the normal complications were to um, figure out, well, what did he actually do wrong? And then conveying that to the jury in a manner that they could understand. You know, I had a couple of years to learn it and figure it all out and study it. And these jurors had mm, a few hours, (laughs) you know, a few days um, of hearing from the doctors. And so that was um, certainly one of the big tasks that we had, narrowing that down and making it understandable.
4: So you
2: charged uh, Christopher Dunge with, uh, you know, aggravated assault, but also with elder abuse, which was, you know, I think a relatively novel way of approaching us, approaching it. Talk to us about why you chose those charges. Obviously, every prosecutor chooses charges that they think will be successful and they stay away from charges that they don't think will be successful. So talk to us about how you made those decisions
7: um, so we, we ended up going with the injury to an elderly person because it gave us the, the greatest punishment range. Um, and also just that particular patient stood out so much and the things that he did in her surgery were so egregious that we felt like they could stand on their own, even if all of the other patients didn't come in front of the jury. And, um, I had a great legal team working with me on that and helped me come up with that brilliant, um, way of charging and, um, that's just kind of what we decided on, that that fit the best, that he was using um, deadly weapons were his surgical tools in his hands.
2: Yeah. And we just talked in another uh, case about how it's difficult for victims of you know, sexual and physical abuse to come forward. And that often makes it difficult to win a prosecution. Talk to us yeah. in this kind of case, how important it was for the victims of Christopher Dunch's um, actions to come forward and how I'm sure That really resonated with the jury to hear directly from the victims who, you know, those those that were still in the courtroom. Unfortunately, some of the victims have died because of what Christopher Dunch did. But how important was it for the folks who are still alive but unfortunate victims to connect with the jury?
7: I think it was super important and the jury really paid um, attention to them. They could feel, you know, what the patient was feeling. Um, They were excellent at describing it. Um, the patients, when I talked to them initially, they were most of them were very willing to tell their story. They'd been hurt. They never had their chance to go to court and have him held personally responsible. And so they um, really, I think that process was cathartic for them. Um, and even the jurors were so emotionally involved that some of them were crying as the patients were telling their story. And that really just told us how much um, they cared and everybody would care about those patients being injured.
2: Michelle, so you know, all of us who practice law, we always think, well, you know, our cases are worthy of a Hollywood story. They 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 never are, but we always fantasize about who would play us uh, in the inevitable film. So I'm going to show our listeners who portrayed you, a great actress by all accounts, but a uh, young lady by the name of Anna Sophia Rob. And here yeah. you are on the left, of course, and here she is on the right. And you know, again. I thought she did a great job and and nice, nice young lady, but doesn't look anything like you and, you know, totally a different hair color, haircut. So, you know, what was your thought when you saw uh, this actress portraying you? Did you say, "Who, who is this?
7: (laughs) <laughs> no. Oh, she is so lovely and beautiful and wonderful. And I was like, oh, look, they picked somebody younger and more beautiful to play. Like, I love this <laughs> all day long. Um, and she just did a fantastic job and really took the time to get to know me and try and portray my personality. And I was really appreciative of that. And she, I thought she did an excellent job. So I was very excited.
2: Did you Were you involved at all? I mean, did you give any notes about, well, it didn't quite happen that way? Listen, obviously, I'm a producer myself. I produce films actually on the side. And obviously there's a certain degree of um, dramatic license that you have to put in any production. You're not going to you know, you're going to bore people if you just do it directly the way uh, the way the trial went. But did you have any input? Were they receptive to listening to sort of some of your direction, you know, having been there in, in, in real life?
7: Um, yeah, like I didn't have any input on what the ultimate script was like or anything like that. But I gave a lot of background about how things went and what it really looked like. And then they took the big stories that they gathered from everybody that they talked to and um, created this story. And it generally follows along. Um, you know, they had to condense some of the characters. Obviously, you can't put everybody into the story, but I thought they did a good job.
2: <laughs> now, we got to get Dr. Henderson on because... I was telling Joe how happy was Dr. Henderson. I mean, (laughs) very distinguished, nice-looking man, of course, but he got Alec Baldwin to play.
7: I know, God, I love Alec Baldwin. (laughs)
2: That's amazing. Well, uh, you know, the story is really amazing, Um, and and you know, I I, we don't often get a chance to you know be sort of heroic in the law, but you're a hero, really, because what you did, um, I think unquestionably was. Honestly, stop a crime in process, stop a serial killer. No different than, you know, any other serial killer. This one, as you mentioned, his tools happen to be a scalpel. But, you know, what you did through your prosecution of Christopher Dunge uh, was really heroic. And I think uh, is everything about why you go into prosecution in the first place. So I, You know, we really thank you and commend you for your work in this
7: case. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it, it really is one of those cases that makes you feel good about, what you did at the end of the day you were able to help some people and I love how it's um, taken off so that we can spread the word so that patients can really understand like you have to also be your own advocate because maybe people aren't necessarily watching out for you even though I think most doctors are amazing and doing a great job there are some bad ones again you can catch the series
1: Dr. Death on Peacock Michelle thanks so much for sharing the insight and pulling back the curtain a little bit on this (laughs)
7: of course thanks y'all
1: It's time for the legal grab bag here on the legal face off podcast on WGN radio. I'm Joe Brand joined by Rich Blankoff and our two guests, some familiar names. Uh, not that one, but Tony Esposito joins us. He's now retired, but he used to run the Anthony Esposito law firm since 1991. He's also a master mariner, a captain, Tony, Tony, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. And the prodigal son returns, Sam Paniatovich, who, May or may not have hosted this show for quite some time. He's now a sports gambling analyst at Nessun. You can also catch his podcast at Chicken Dinner. Follow him on Twitter at SB Shoot. Follow his podcast at Chicken X Dinner. Sam, is there anything else I missed? Anything at all you want to throw out there? Just that I'm a
8: long-time uh, listener, first-time First. caller in the program. <laughs> it's been uh it's been a blast all these years.
2: Long-time first-time. Six over six years Sam was uh our our host here at Legal Face Off. Till he went off to greener pastures in, in Boston, but good to see you, old friends. It's good to be back. Got yeah. the uh, what, what kind of fish we got in the background there? We got, got some,
8: three uh, discus. We've got seven geophagus. We've got some rasboras. We've got some sucker fish. You've seen the tank though. You were here. I have in
2: person. Yeah. Mm. Well, we opened a can of worms, Joe. Who knew that Sam was such a uh, what do you call a a fish expert? Tony, is it a file, what is it? It's got uh, a,
9: pescadore.
2: Pesca, ah, you see, I know he would I know. He would know. Not, not to be confused with a pescatarian.
9: That's right. Not quite the fish that we have out here in the Channel Lakes, though.
2: Yeah, Tony is my neighbor, uh, fellows on the Channel Lakes. I am not, I am the, if there's such a thing as the opposite of a master mariner, that's me. Don't ask me how many, anch- in the short time I've owned a boat, I've lost many anchors. I've bashed into things. I've almost killed a few people on the chain of lakes. So, Tony, uh, bear with me. you got to teach me some of the ways of the chain of lakes. I would love to come out with you. Absolutely. Let's I go. Feel
1: like, I feel like I'm the only non-aquatic expert now, now that Sam's on the East Coast and he knows right. all these things about fish. Uh, all right. right, let's So let's jump into our first topic of the Gabby Petito case. It was just this past weekend that remains were actually found later identifying them as Gabby petito Rich. Now the FBI is searching for her fiance who fled town.
2: Yeah, we just covered this, obviously, in our uh, earlier segment with Jeff Lanz, FBI expert. But I want to bring it up today and, and get everyone's perspective. You know, so many different angles to it. I mean, one of the things that we didn't talk to Jeff about, but that's troubling me, you know, legally, is how the cops didn't stop and charge uh, laundry during the now infamous body cam video that we've all seen, right? I mean, they pull they pull them over. She's crying. She talks about some altercation they had. We now know that that was uh, precipitated by a 911 call where a bystander saw them on the street where he slapped her. I think the cops, you know, have some accountability here. Of course, we all understand that, you know, uh, police make mistakes. And in the moment, uh, you know, you try to err on the side of not charging people. Uh, I think the park ranger herself has come on and said she wishes she handled things differently, but man, you can't help but wonder if things would have gone differently for this young lady had the police, you know, maybe stopped and and apprehended him rather than just have them separate for the night. Uh, Sam, what are your thoughts on, on the video or, you know, the way he's acting? He's certainly, obviously he's now fled. He's acting guilty the family. His family's acting super strange, lots of troubling uh, aspects to this, all of which point in my mind, inextricably to to his guilt.
8: I don't think you do this stuff if you're innocent, right? I mean, that's pretty obvious. Now, I'm not going to throw him under the bus yet. Let's wait until we get some more details. But two things come to mind. Number one, I know this guy probably has a smartphone. How can we not just track him? If you're a millennial, you're not going to the forest preserve or the port or wherever without some sort of a cellular connect. So that's number one. The fact that we still can't track people down, even though Every time we're talking about Reese's Pieces, they pop up on my phone. Like, I say the words and you could find Reese's Pieces. Uh, the second part, aren't the, I mean, you guys are smarter than I am. Are the parents accomplices if he turns out to be guilty because they, they knew where he was? Odds are good they know what he did. And now they're essentially giving him, like, what if they're sending the police on a wild goose chase? Like, oh, yeah, he went here, but in all reality, he's there. Can they bring them in for questioning? I, just, I have so many questions about this. Entire situation.
2: No question. It's a great point. I mean, the the families acted strange. I think one of the wasn't one of them like off riding a bike during all of this, and they decided to take a bike ride. But there's no question that if the family members, um, you know, aided and abetted, using a term that you've all heard, and you know, gave improper information to the authorities, there's no question they're involved. in my mind, and there's no question they'll probably be charged. Now, whether they'll be prosecuted, you know, often, as you've covered, as we've covered many times on the show, Sam, prosecutors will use one family member to flip against another and to use, you know, that as leverage. That's probably going on behind the scenes. But yeah, I mean, all signs point to this guy's guilt, Tony. Uh, What are your thoughts on it?
9: Well, I think that now it's been ruled a homicide. I think the parents are probably in a lot of hot water. And um, I heard an interesting interview from Jonathan Gilliam. He's a retired FBI special agent and former Navy SEAL. And going to what uh, Joe um, uh, Sam talked about, their search for to find him is a little strange. Instead of creating a wide perimeter where they think he could be going and, and kind of investigate from outside to the in, they're using old-fashioned techniques and they're not really using the tracking device and the ability to figure out where he could be or where he could be going. So I, I don't quite understand why they haven't caught the guy already, that, unless he's killed himself. But, and yeah, the thing I... about him being uh, with the, with the uh, forest ranger, it sounds to me like a relationship that was, uh, you know, a very troubled relationship where she was maybe hiding some of the other things that that young man was doing to her. Uh, some abuse and all that. And, and it's surprising that somebody didn't pick up on that. And like you said, Rich, call the guy in or bring him into the station or question a little more. It's it's a little strange.
2: Joe, we're going to cover, hopefully on our next show, uh, another interesting component of this story, which I think is being underreported. I, I do give some credence to this whole idea that this is an example of missing white woman syndrome, right? The idea being, you know, these stories, this story gets national international attention and uh, this is a white woman who is missing. And we don't spend as much time when the victim is a, you know, person of color. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of cases of missing women who are, you know, African American, who are Hispanic, And none of them get the type of attention that this person who is, you know, young, blonde, very attractive, gets so. There is this whole idea that the media uh, is focused on this and the world is because she is a person of privilege rather than you know, someone who doesn't get that kind of attention. So, again, we're going to try to cover this on a future show because I think it's a really interesting aspect of the whole story.
1: Uh, that kind of reminds me of the whole with that topic being brought up when the Casey Anthony was going on a, a few right. years ago. Um, Kind of the same concept there. Another popular story, um, or I I should say well-known story right now, the abortion laws down in Texas. And meanwhile, a San Antonio doctor is facing two lawsuits after violating Texas's six week abortion ban.
2: Yeah, I mean, we knew it would be tested fairly quick. Right. So the uh, law says that after just six weeks, uh, you can by you, I mean, anyone can in Texas sue Uh, a doctor or anyone really who assists in an abortion now that this law has been passed, and now that the Supreme Court of the United States has refused to overturn it. So we knew that fairly quickly it would be tested, and it has. Two different uh, people have filed lawsuits. One is apparently um, against this law and is trying to make an issue of it. The other is squarely in favor of the law, Both of them sued a doctor, Dr. Alan Braid in Bexar County, uh, who is continuing to perform abortions in the face of the law. And the idea being, let's test it. Now, you know, from uh, our coverage of it and from wide wide range coverage is one of the quirks and one of the reasons this law survived is because it creates uh, prosecutors out of citizens. Right. It says that anyone can file a lawsuit against anyone assisting in an abortion and by anyone again means you know if you see a uh, uber driver take someone to an abortion clinic you can sue that uber driver even though logically this flies in the face of everything we know about jurisprudence of our lawsuits, right, Tony? I mean, to, to file a lawsuit generally, you have to have what's called standing. You have to have right. some skin in the game. You have to be harmed. You have to have some damages. Those are all concepts that go back as long as we've been, you know, uh, uh, lawyers and, and way beyond that, of course. Well, now anyone, even though they don't have any skin in the game, even though they don't have any provable damages, can sue a doctor like happened in this case. So um, it's interesting that these lawsuits have been filed this quickly, and again, that there are two different kinds of plaintiffs involved in this case. Tony, what are your thoughts on?
9: Well, I wrote the word "standing" about three inches tall. <laughs> That's what came to mind. Creating yeah. stand. Everybody, uh, the two people involved. It looks like they're attention seekers. The one gentleman was a uh, convicted tax crime attorney, and the other a person works for uh, a uh, what was it? A, a pro-life organization. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, I, I just. You know, I'm a believer that you know we federalism means the states can, when it comes to an issue like this, are allowed to make their own choices, and then it's up to the Supreme Court to kind of you know figure out what's to be done. Uh, and I think that this creates it gets away from that. It creates a lot of a lot of trouble by having everybody be a potential plaintiff. It
2: and really to that point, Sam. To that point, to show you how removed these plaintiffs are from. The defendant, the one, the former tax attorney that Tony mentioned, uh, who uh, is serving a home confinement sentence for federal conviction on tax crime, is a tax attorney in Arkansas. The second plaintiff, who is the pro-choice plaintiff lawsuit, is a man named Felipe Gomez, who's an Illinois resident. So, you know, it continues to show how wacky this law is that people in different states, not in Texas, have no... Connection to this doctor aren't victims of him, if you even if you believe there are victims, isn't a victim, have no recognizable damages, yet can sue him in Texas.
8: Right. I think Tony brought up a good point about attention. I would have never gone there. I think my initial reaction stems back to, you know, the law going into effect, or the ban rather going into effect on September 1st. Rich, you know how it is in this pandemic. It's not easy to get up and move. And all these females in Texas who used to have the option to make a choice are pretty much choiceless. Now they either have to leave Texas or put up with this law, which they had no idea was coming. And, you know, I lean right on several issues, but this is one um, pro choice. I've always, I've always you know, leaned to the left and, you know, the fact that you can no longer decide um, with enough time is, is terrible. I mean, some of these women don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks. You know a lot of them find out at 8 10 12 14 weeks that they're pregnant and then the law says you can't be pro-choice um it's a hot mess from the from the get-go from jump street
2: yeah for sure i mean the good news is um the supreme court will in just a few short weeks be taking up the mississippi version of this kind of case which squarely will decide the issue for good of course this issue wasn't really decided on its merits uh, in terms of hearing oral arguments and being briefed, and actually the justice is signing the decision. So we will know for sure where the Supreme Court stands on this in the Mississippi case in the upcoming term.
1: Rich, Prince Andrew of Britain is now being sued for sexually abusing a woman before she was 18 at the late Jeffrey Epstein's Manhattan mansion.
2: Yeah, I mean, Prince Andrew, you know, the second son of the Queen, uh, was served with a lawsuit. Um, by David Boies. Now, David Boies is one of the you know, arguably the most famous powerful attorney in America. Uh, he, uh, you know, he was involved in Bush v. Gore, hundreds and hundreds of lawsuits of, of great import, argued before the Supreme Court many, many times. Um, and David Boies is the lead attorney on the case for his client, uh, Virginia Jeffrey, uh, who is alleging that she was sexually abused by Prince Andrew when she was 17. Uh, we've talked on the show before about the now infamous photograph showing Prince Andrew with his arm around her. He has said that he did not remember this incident. And of course, you know she's alleging that that led to actual abuse uh, at the home of Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, uh, she also alleges that uh, Giselle Maxwell, who's now awaiting trial in her case, was involved. Um, Again, Prince Andrew says, I don't remember this. The photograph was doctored. He is squarely denied any involvement. Um, and he's now being sued civilly. Many interesting legal aspects to this case, Tony, are that, uh, of course, he's avoided service. Uh, the complaint attaches actual photographs of them attempting to serve him through the mail. They finally got through via FedEx and they served him. Uh, his attorneys are now trying to argue that service was improper and He's also going to argue, I think he's already argued that jurisdiction is not proper because he is a resident of you know, England and this allegedly occurred in the United States. My reading of the judge's order said, "Now nah, we're not going to deal with any of that. You know, he was served, jurisdiction applies, and we're going to deal with the substance of the case, and then he's going to have to face his accuser in court. Now, remember, this is a civil case. He hasn't been prosecuted um, uh, criminally. Um, but it's very notable that a member of the royal family is now going to presumably face uh, the music in court for this alleged behavior on his part.
9: Well, you know, the royal family, it's all about appearances, Rich. And so he's got to make the appearance that he's innocent. Um, I i wish I had my fiance here because the thought came to me. She's excellent at doing a British accent because I think he's just a whiny little uh. Useless bastard, as they would say. So I think once that this lawsuit finally gets going and uh, maybe there's mention of Clinton involvement, he's going to settle his case. There's going to be a settlement that's going to be entered. Nobody's going to know the amount and it's going to go away. But for now, he's got to make the appearance that he's innocent. Yeah. And Sam, Boies has said that they have been trying to
2: resolve it uh, for some time with Prince Andrew, and he's been totally non-responsive. Um, you know, uh, he said that, uh, he's ignored, they said that he's ignored the entire process. And now per David boys, uh, he can't ignore the jurisdiction of New York and the United States. You know, my, and again, you know, if you dive into the the legal part of this a little bit more, they are trying to serve him repeatedly. I can only, I can't help to think of, you know, some Betty Hill music, speaking of, you know, England, some Betty Hill music in the background as they're running around trying to serve the Prince with this legal complaint.
8: Oh, call Betty me crazy. Be, Betty call Hill might be crazy. a little bit before
2: your time, but it's uh, it's great background music.
8: I'm um, Call me crazy for thinking that that combination and that duo of Prince Andrew and Epstein, like that alone makes me wonder what the hell is going on. Uh, two other things. This woman has already settled twice, right? She settled with Epstein in 09 and then settle the defamation claim against Maxwell in 17. So she has some equity built up in the court of truth. I don't think she's out here. You know, oftentimes when you hear about these situations, it's like, well, she needs money or she needs this. The track record has proven that people have, you know, done some things to her in the past. So I give her the benefit of the doubt more than Prince Andrew. And I, I read the alibi. The, the daughter is his alibi, Pizza having mean, pizza with his daughter, right? Does that hold up in court? What, I mean, how old is his daughter? I didn't see it in the story. I I picture a six year old girl for some reason. Like, yeah, Daddy was home. I mean that that alibi doesn't sound very concrete. Yeah, but 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 look at it.
2: The I I would say the opposite. Uh, I'm going to take the opposite perspective on her settlement. Uh, and you might look at it as well. She's you know only in it for the money, and she's now been successful in making allegations that resulted in settlements two separate times. So she's now learned, oh, yeah, I could sue someone famous, even though they didn't do anything to me and get money from them. That's the other perspective that, you know, you can't you can't ignore.
8: It's very true. You hate to think that way, but it's certainly, you know, in these court of opinions, it's You know, he said, she said, and we really have to wait for the facts, as we always do. I learned that from a lawyer named Rich Linkov on Legal Faceoff many years ago.
2: Exactly.
9: The thing about that, Rich, is you got three really slimy people here, in my humble opinion. You got Epstein, you got his girlfriend, and then you got uh, Prince Andrew. So in in that situation, I don't blame her for going after all three. For sure. Good point.
1: The Kyle Rittenhouse trial and a Kenosha County judge has ruled on Friday that the jury will not hear about the teenager's alleged ties to the Proud Boys.
2: Yeah, Proud Boys. And he also kicked out, um, you know, the photo of, of Rittenhouse flashing the, uh, the white supremacist sign. And also he ruled that the jury will not hear about an incident where Rittenhouse punched a girl and also, in which he said that he wished he had his assault rifle with him so he could shoot people that he thought were uh, was shoplifting from a drugstore. Now, this, all of these incidents happened, except for the um, the flashing the hand signal that happened afterwards. But the other two incidents involving the, the girl and involving, you know, this statement happened before. And his attorney successfully argued that the that the that this had nothing to do with what they call self-defense, right? We all know the Kyle's written out story where he took it upon himself to drive from Illinois to Kenosha to get involved in this protest. He ultimately shot two people, killed one of them, um, is now being tried by a Kenosha um, prosecutor. And his allegation is that he was simply acting in self-defense. And then the video tells the entire story because the video you could see, you know, uh, one of the victims trying to grab his gun. But I thought it was really interesting in in this motion uh, last week, in this hearing last week, that the judge suppressed what would be really damaging evidence. Um, Now you have to understand that judges have to err on the side of keeping evidence out that uh, that's prejudicial, right? Because you have to be fair, and if there's any question, if it's sort of even that, well, maybe it's helpful, but maybe it's prejudicial. Judges have to err on the side of keeping it out because you don't want to taint the jury with prior acts that aren't maybe relevant and that might cloud the jury's thoughts. In other words, in this case, the the argument was, well, he punched a girl. Well, that's a teenager getting into a fight. Obviously, you don't want a boy punching a girl, but that is not predictive of how he would have acted in this case. The judge agreed. They also say that the statement he made to think that he made this statement about shooting people who are were, who are were sh- uh, uh, stealing from a drugstore means that he had the state of mind to stop, you know, black rioters is too much of a leap. I personally disagree. I think that's incredibly relevant. It's certainly material. It's certainly relevant to a state of mind, as is the most important point, which is after this all happened, he goes to a bar and he has lunch with um, the Proud Boys. And in this photo, uh, in nearby Mount Pleasant, he is flashing the OK sign, which we all know now has been co-opted by white supremacists and as a sign of white power. The judge, on the other hand, said in keeping this photo out, he said, well, it could have been a chance coincidence uh, with people who are merely happy to take pictures with him. He also said that the OK sign is also used in in a game Uh, chef boy or campaign. So he kept it out. I don't know. That's a, that's a tough ruling in my opinion. Uh, When you look at everything that this kid has done um, I think it's, it's very relevant. Uh, I think the jury should have heard it. Uh, Sam, what are your thoughts on? I
8: I agree with you on that. He certainly has been celebrated by the proud boys. I mean, they look at him as sort of a hero now. So dismissing, cold evidence that, you know, he may be connected to these guys and, and goes out to lunch with them. I think that certainly helps the case. So I don't know that I agree with the video being you know kicked out or whatever. But um, I mean, there's still enough evidence here. You know, the ADA, Thomas Binger, uh, they talked about the FBI finding images where Rittenhouse was actually following the guy that he shot. Um, it was told a different way, I believe by the Rittenhouse camp. So, uh, Rittenhouse said that he said something and then Rosenbaum chased him. Well, it turns out the FBI has proof that that's not true. Um, and it just, I don't know. It's, it's tough because I thought all things play, you know, images, video, if, if it's, a, if it's acquired legally, um, I didn't see an issue with it and I want to see the whole easel, right? I don't want to see a quarter of it or a third of it or whatever. So I think, having that video uh, is something that should be a part of this investigation. And it starts, what, November 1st, I think. Um, so, I mean, the more things that come forward, why not Why not use them?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And and I have to correct myself. Uh, he shot three people, killed two of them. He killed two, shot three. One of them was, was wounded. But, Tony, you know, Sam raises a really good point. Why not just throw everything in and let the jury decide? And the answer, of course, and I want your take on this, is the stat, you know, you have to have a certain standard of admissibility, and that standard has to be that the evidence is more probative than it is prejudicial, right? That it helps the jury more than it prejudices them. And what the defense successfully argued here, and I actually watched a lot of the hearing, is that, remember, he's being accused of uh, shooting, you know, being involved because uh, he was a racist, and the Proud Boys are a racist organization. All three victims were white. So what is the relevance of the Proud Boys in a case where the victims were white? I do think that has some uh, compelling arguments to it.
9: So I, When I heard it, I thought this was kind of the definition of evidence that would be more prejudicial than probative as to what took place in those moments when he was there with his firearm, whether he committed, you know, murder, a lesser offense, or whether he was acting in self-defense, but when I did a little searching, I found something interesting about what Judge Schroeder said, and it wasn't in the link that you had given me. If I'm quoting this correctly, the judge said, if you get a conviction, it will almost certainly be reversed if I let evidence of a connection to the Proud Boys in at the trial, and I thought that was a quote from the judge. So what that tells me is this young man is in serious trouble. I I think that he is gonna be convicted. I think I, I don't think he's gonna get a fair trial in front of this judge. So I I I think the judge is trying to do everything he can so that his eventual conviction conviction doesn't get overturned.
2: Yeah, and and you know, I, what 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 put me over the top in thinking that it should have been admitted, I, I agree basically what the judge did on every count, because again, to your point, Tony you don't want to set up a case on appeal where it's being a a successful prosecution is being thrown up because of it. Right. The one thing that put me over the top is flashing the okay sign. I mean, that's not, that's not a tribute to chef YRD. That's not a kid sign. There's no question. He's standing with the proud boys and he's flashing the okay sign that's now been accepted as a sign of white supremacy. I don't know how you could interpret that any other way. I think it's directly relevant to his state of mind. Also understanding though, of course, that he didn't shoot any black people. So Maybe in the grand scheme of things, it's better to keep it all out, right, you know, to just keep the focus, laser focused on whether this was self-defense or not.
8: Right. So, and I, mean, I think we want- can also take the racism out of it, too. I want to bring up one quick moment of legal face-off legend, Rich, when Jesse Jackson Jr. and I got into an argument about protests against riots and, you know, like buildings were being burned and things were going through windows and it was like, it's a protest. Well, it wasn't a protest. It was a riot. Same thing as this one in Kenosha. But at the end of the day... This kid showed up to a protest with a rifle. Why do you have a rifle to kill, whether it be animals or humans? So I, come on, it is what it is.
2: You know, speaking of, that's a great, it's a great point. Speaking of standing, right? I mean, what, what connection did he have to go? He didn't live there. He lived in Antioch near where Tony is, is sitting right there. Uh, he had no connection to Kenosha. He was there to protect it from, you know, mostly black people. Protesting, rioting, whatever you want to call it, he had no standing there. He had no connection but for wanting to get involved and do what he did, cause some mayhem. So that, you
9: know, that's the major fact I think that goes to his intent. Right. Is, you know, malice aforethought, basically. Yeah, I mean,
2: it's one thing if you shoot someone because you're protecting your own business, another thing to get into your car, drive to a whole other city, and then protect others' business that you have no connection to.
1: Speaking of relocating, Are you looking for some real estate in Mexico? How about entering the lottery? Mexico is putting up El Chapo's former safe house for the main prize of a national lottery, Rich.
2: Yeah, they gave it away, right? I think the lottery already happened. So uh, El Chapo had a variety of safe houses. If you haven't seen the video, you got to check it out because it's incredible. Um, You know, I live not too far from the green mill here in Chicago where famously Al Capone had a series of uh, tunnels, uh, leading out of the Green Mill. Well, uh, there are some incredible tunnels that would put uh, uh, the Breaking Bad. Who's the Who's the Breaking Bad kingpin again? The uh,
1: uh, Walter White. Walter White.
2: No, no. I mean the the act. Brian Cranston. No, no, no. The the uh, the the chicken guy. Oh uh, well, Gus. Gus. I mean, yeah, we put Gus to shame. But uh, El Chapo in these safe houses had tunnels, an intricate series of tunnels below the bathtub. So, you know, you would lift the tub and you crawl down into the ch- into the tunnel. And that's how he escaped. Uh, he was eight minutes uh, ahead of the Marines when he escaped and now famously has escaped from a couple of jails. And that was serving time. But yeah, the Mexican government was unsuccessful in uh, selling it. They wanted $130,000 for it. So they decided to give it away uh, in a lottery and the proceeds Uh, would go to the Mexican Olympic uh, Federation, I believe. But um, yeah, not a bad, not a bad property. Maybe you could, maybe you could do something with it. Uh, Sam, what would you do with the uh, El Chapo property? All beat up, you know, all uh, uh, post uh, uh, attack by the Mexican Marines. Uh, Any thoughts on how to turn that place around?
8: Well, I don't know that we could turn it around. I think the surrounding area holds down the value of the property, right? Um, I will say when I first read the story, though, I refused to acknowledge that it was a safe house. So I saw the price and I thought, wait, I thought this guy was loaded. You know, like I think a a drug kingpin would have a much more luscious place to go and escape from. So I saw the price tag and I thought he must have not done everything right. Um, I I don't- Uh, And also to that point, by the way, not a safe house if you got caught there. <laughs> yeah. So maybe that's why the bidding is uh, is lower than I imagined. And Anthony, uh, Tony, I will not be putting in a bid on this. I will not outbid you if you want to go for it.
9: Well, what I would do is level it and turn it into a baseball field for the local kids. That's what I would probably do with it. <laughs> Try to give the kids something to do, you know, instead of hanging out in the streets and that kind of thing.
2: A museum, Joe, maybe a museum to... Uh... To Chapo. Yeah, it, it was kind of crappy. I mean, I looked, you know, uh, there was like a couple of beds in the bedrooms. And, you know, the funny thing is, if you look at these videos, it is a sort of freeze frame of what happened right before he had to get out of there. Because there's still like a breakfast cereal in the in the sink and there's still, you know, food. It looks like literally they, as they did, made it out eight minutes before El Federales came came bursting in.
1: Well, if you follow Tony's recommendation and turn it into a baseball field, you don't need to pay for digging into the ground because apparently there's there's already been that construction down there for the dugouts. So you could go that route. Um, I'd maybe turn it into some kind of like uh, jungle gym type thing with slides underground, something like that. Go with the kids route, giving it back if, if we're still going that way. Not a family restaurant called Guzman's, you know?
9: <laughs> not bad, not bad. Bad idea.
1: All right. uh, For the thrill seekers, would you rather live in the former safe house of a Mexican drug lord or find a Mike Myers impersonator staring at you on the beach? Because that's what's happened down in Texas, Rich.
2: Yeah. um, The attorney's name is Mark Metzger, and he the courts were closed one day in Galveston, and he decided to, you know, he had some free time on his hand. Dressed up as our beloved Michael Myers. I have to take this opportunity to tell you that I'm a uh, diehard, as Sam knows, Michael Myers fan. I've seen every film. I've got a mask in my office, my real office, signed by 95% of the actors who have played Michael Myers. It's one of my prized possessions. But I digress. Dressed up as Michael Myers, mask, uh, auto mechanic suit, fake knife, bloody knife. It was Roman the Beach when he was picked up by the police, handcuffed. Um And, uh, you know, I think a pretty good, pretty solid case of overzealous prosecution. What's wrong with, you know, walking around minding your own business dressed as uh, one of the most beloved villains of all time? He did describe the subsequent arrest and apprehensions, uh, apprehension as a uh, as a Scooby-Doo cartoon, you know, where the police grab him. They finally pull off a mask and he says, you pesky kids, you caught me. Um, But, yeah, let me show Joe and Tony and Sam our, our viewers. The image here, because it is a little haunting. There he is. There's our friend, Attorney Metzger, just walking the beaches of Galveston. What I do criticize him for is, you know, one of the one of the things that you know as a Michael Myers aficionado is never show the neckline right there. Big mistake. Gives it away every day. You got to cover that thing. You got to tuck it in. Otherwise, everyone knows you're you're a poser.
9: Uh, Tony, uh, I know you got a got- bitch. So this story hit me uh, in a strange way. Being an attorney, you're an attorney, not just in the courtroom, but out there in the public. And doing something wacky like this, I think this guy, uh, I think they should suspend his license and put him through a psyche valve. What? I don't get it. I don't oh, get it. I mean, you know, as lawyers, there could be a lot of, he, he talked about he wanted to do this for something fun as a prank. You know, why don't we bring some good attention to the legal uh, profession and, you know, donate our time to school? So, you know, there's a a school, a high school in Iowa where kids can get credit for uh, gym class by mowing the lawns of older people and people that, um, you know, are in wheelchairs and can't get out and do that. That's the kind of thing I think he should be doing if he wants to bring some good attention to the legal profession, not something... Goofy like this, but I agree, right. his right to do it. It's it is, but I mean, he's brought more bad on himself than the perfect. We don't need it. We just don't need it. That's so what Tony, you're
2: saying I cannot come on the boat with Captain Tony dressed like Michael Myers? Is that what I'm getting? No.
9: Th- now, what happens on the water? That's different. You know, that's maritime law. That's, that's something right. totally different. So you 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 have immunity if you come on the boat with that.
2: All right, Sam uh, Metzger said that he was bringing positive vibes to the gloom and doom out there generating some laughter, helping people crack a smile, and restoring our faith in humanity through humor. Then he'd do it again, he said.
8: Nothing says positive vibes like putting fake blood on a knife and standing in the public. Um, obviously, Rich, you're a little biased here, as we uh, as we have come to learn in the last couple of minutes. You've got 95% of the Halloween people signing the mask. He didn't really do anything wrong. I just... I think some of these situations are putting yourself in the right or wrong situations. And I don't think you get, I use my term all the time, benefit of the doubt. I don't think you get the benefit of the doubt when you're standing under a bridge with a knife. Um, and at this point in time, in 2021, I don't think that's something that makes me laugh. Even though I'm laughing right now, I mean, it's so sick and twisted. I know he did nothing wrong, but, You know, what happens if somebody charges at him and then he's got like the situation is bad from the get go.
9: I agree, Sam.
1: You know, what's interesting is this was actually not this specifically, but there's a YouTube video and kind of a collection of them where the husband is just wandering around the neighborhood dressed as Mike Myers and the wife is confronting him. So it's it's meant to be a joke. So when you first watch it, you realize it's a joke. And you do kind of laugh at it. And then I, I read this and I thought, oh, yeah, this is this is not sharing or shedding good light anywhere. But, you know, now I guess I can kind of see both sides. Not that I agree either way, but yeah, I, that I, couple I
2: that couple was from Illinois, Joe, that you're referring to. And they made it on to the, uh, the Kelly Clarkson show because the wife, you know, pulled up to the husband who's dressed as Michael Myers <laughs> driving a bike. And she says, get your ass home right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Apples and oranges, I guess. Um, Man, Mike Myers, Scooby-Doo, Kelly Clarkson, all these things bring back my childhood. Another thing that brings back my childhood is pizza rolls. However, back then, the biggest concern was eating them while they're too hot. Used to bend the corners and blow into them to cool them off. Uh, One Oklahoma mother wishes that that was her problem. Instead, it was the fact that there was some human feces on the bag that she picked at the grocery store, Rich.
2: You know, Melissa, we talked earlier about, you know, rising violence in Chicago and hell. It's got to be better than I mean, in Texas, we got the abortion ban. Uh, We also have uh, this guy in Texas, the Michael Myers lawyer. Um, And now we have the uh, the pizza roll pooper uh, in uh, in Moore, Oklahoma. Uh, This this woman said she was picking up some items from the grocery store in Moore, Oklahoma, and with her two daughters, and she reached into the ba- the uh, cooler, to get a bag of frozen pizza rolls. And rather than the delicious pizza rolls, she got a bag of poop. Um, and uh, the police picked up a person of interest, right? God forbid we call him a suspect. Person of interest, <coughs> who um, allegedly uh, defecated in this cooler. And also was taking pictures of women in the grocery store. Now, listen, I'm a big fan of pizza rolls. How can't you be? But they're not maybe the most wholesome, maybe not the most healthy snack. They've often been described as crap. You know, what is that crap you're putting in your body? Well, in this case, we are all literally seeing crap instead of pizza rolls. Sam, I know you live on pizza rolls when you were a single man.
8: Not anymore, but I can anymore, still, I could still, and would still put down a hundred of those in one sitting. Poop or not, I'm, I will eat a hundred of those pizza rolls in one sitting. Um, I here's the thing: this guy was booked into the uh, Cleveland County Detention Center on unrelated charges. Like, so he, he's what's unrelated from the poop probe? You know, like I wonder. That's what I think. Like, what well, else it's worse than the poop? <laughs>
9: yeah,
8: if it's unrelated to the poop probe. What is that crime? That's, that's where my mind goes. Honestly,
2: how many other fecal-related crimes are you involved in, sir? That well, being- no, it's
8: unrelated. It's unrelated to poop. So it's got to be something.
9: I don't know what it is.
2: Worse than pizza? That pizza roll, poop, right? <sighs> Tony, Number bring us on with your take on this. Well,
9: what we I used to I used to hold a golf outing out this way in McHenry Country Club, and we used to pretend it was like the Masters. So the winner last year could pick what they wanted to eat. You know how many times people wanted pizza pops or pizza rolls? It happened all the time. So when I I, I heard this story, that's all I could hearken back to. It's just, uh, it's a, it, it brings disgrace on such a great, you know, appetite, such a wholesome type of uh, fun thing to eat.
2: Delicious, delicious. Yeah. Sam, we can't let you go without talking a little bit about Boston sports. Uh, we got none other than the former White Sox great, uh, Chris Sale going tonight. The Red Sox, they're in a battle with, uh, with Jays, Yankees for that wild card spot. Uh, you know, kind of a controversial call to pitch sale tonight. He's seems like he's lost some of his velocity in his last start. What's the local take on uh, Chris Sale and generally Red Sox as they're fighting their way to uh, the playoffs here?
8: Well, luckily, Boston, they end their season with uh, three against Baltimore, three against Washington, and the numbers, which you know I look at every single hour of every single day, numbers give the Red Sox an 89% chance to make the playoffs, so odds are good they get in, and if they do get in, they will give that ball to Chris Sale in a one-game playoff, and they're hoping it's not Garrett Cole and the Yankees. Um, There's a sense here in Boston that they want the Blue Jays, which – Good luck with Vlad Jr. and all those sluggers in that lineup. I know uh, the Canadians are close to your heart, but uh, you're more of an exposed guy, RIP. But, um, you know, Sales not throwing 96, 97 like he used to. But that fastball, he throws a couple of them, you know, and a fastball at 91. And then you throw a second one at 94. It, it still looks like 97. He's just, he knows how to get you out. And uh, this team should get into the postseason. And if they do get in, they're dangerous, but they got to get in. That's, that's the rub, right? You have to get in to be dangerous, and there's a chance that they don't make it, but uh, the numbers say almost a 90% chance that they get in.
2: Finally, what about Mac Jones? Does anyone remember this guy named Tom Brady anymore, even though he started off the season now with, what, 10 touchdowns in two games? You got the Mac Jones era beginning there in Boston. Do people care about uh, TB12 anymore, or are they now fully obsessed with uh, the former Arkansas court, or, uh, Oklahoma quarterback?
8: He's all over talk radio, even though he's not here and hasn't been here in over a year. Talk radio in Boston is still Brady, Brady, Brady. And it will be tough to forget Tom Brady when, don't forget, next Sunday, Tom Brady and the Buccaneers roll into Foxboro for the first time ever to face yeah. Bill Belichick. So that'll be the hottest ticket in town. I can only imagine you'll have like six of them. You'll probably be at the game.
2: I'll be there. I'm taking you, Sam.
1: Oh, great. That's the familiar voice of Sam Paniatovich. We thank he and Tony Esposito for joining us here on The Legal Grab Bag. For Rich Lenkoff and all of our producers of Emily Flores, Yvonne Barbosa, and Ben Anderson, I'm Joe Brand. We'll see you next time on The Legal Face-Off podcast here on WGN Radio.
0: It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off two lawyers trading jab for jab so hit them up with any questions you have wgn radio we blowing up your stereo got a question just pick up the phone and they'll let you know covering sports
1: hollywood and don't forget the-